Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Good to have you all here on a beautiful spring evening here in Minnesota. More often than not, faith and life events feature beautiful weather outside. So you're welcome. Um, <laughs> we were just visiting with tonight's speaker who said he doesn't recall ever being in Minnesota when it has been above freezing. Um, <laughs> And actually, he was originally scheduled to be here in April, and I, I actually didn't double-check if that was during the snowstorm or not. In any case, it's good to have you all here. I'm Tim Westermeyer, the senior pastor at St. Philip the Deacon, uh, and on behalf of the congregation and all of the sponsors of this uh, important series, we're delighted you're here. Um, this is actually the conclusion now of the 15th year of this season. So our speaker tonight, if my math is correct, is our 75th speaker in the series, which is a wonderful testimony to uh, deep roots that the series has put down in this um, community. I always like to ask, uh, is there anyone here who has never been to a Faith in Life event before? Wow, excellent, wonderful, Lo lovely. A special welcome to all of you. Um, we're glad you're here particularly. Uh, over the last 15 years, those of you who have been with us know we have cast a broad net in terms of the kinds of speakers we brought in. They're all Christian, but they come from all different denominations, all different walks of life. Uh, tonight, you will hear from someone who is the founder and employee number one of the world's largest anti-slavery uh, organization. Uh, you can read more about his official bio uh, in the program, and he'll no doubt share part of that story. I always like to share at least one or two off of the, you know, beaten path facts about our speakers, though, uh, including, let's see, he, he loves CrossFit. Anyone else a big CrossFit fan? <laughs> what One. <laughs> uh, he used to play rugby, which sounds painful, um, and he is also 100% Norwegian. There, there we go. <laughs> We've been working a long time to get him here. Will you help me welcome Gary Haugen? Yes, well, things were going badly there for a while and until we brought out the Norwegian bit, and I knew that might save me, so... Well, good evening. It's a great privilege to get to be here with you, and thank you, Tim, for the invitation, and thank you to all of those who make this lecture series uh, possible. And what a great thing that you would take the time on uh, an evening such as this for us just to consider together in some fresh ways the implications of faith in real life. I'd like to begin by asking you if you can remember back in your earliest years when someone gave you the dignity of responsibility. I remember this very clearly because I was about eight years old and my family was going to visit all of our Norwegian relatives in Tacoma, Washington. And especially we were going to go live and spend time with Aunt Phyllis and Uncle Chuck. Now, Uncle Chuck was, you know, just an old-school construction worker, and he had the height and the girth and the mobility of a vending machine. 
but he was my favorite uncle because he was funny and because he let me watch TV. And one night we were up way past my bedtime watching Gunsmoke together when Uncle Chuck asked me if I would be willing to come with him to work the next day to help him out. Well, this was pretty much like Neil Armstrong asking you with help on the mission to the moon, right? This was serious. This was the big time. I was needed. I would probably have to wake up before dawn and drink coffee. (laughs) And indeed, the next morning, my little eight-year-old self did both of those things. It was an epic, sweaty day. Handing heavy tools to my Uncle Chuck, sweeping up mountains of sawdust and trash. And at the end of the day, I packed up the truck pretty much all by myself. Then I scrambled up to ride shotgun on the way home. Couldn't really see over the dashboard, but (laughs) nevertheless, I put my arm out the window, right? Ride home just like any working man would at the end of a long day's work. See, that summer I had arrived at Uncle Chuck's about three foot ten. But when I arrived home, I was about seven feet tall. Because Uncle Chuck had given me the dignity of responsibility. He gave me grown-up work to do a sense of significance to my little being and the joy of actually making a difference. This is, of course, the great joy that according to the scriptures, God, our Heavenly Father, invites all of us into as he bestows upon his children the dignity of responsibility as he gives us work to do in his world. In fact, think about everything we've ever learned that God wants done in his world. He wants his gospel to be known, the sick to be healed, the hungry to be fed, families to be whole, justice to be done. And there's two things we know about all those things on that list. Number one, He could, as a sovereign God, do all of them himself. But secondly, he chooses instead to use people to get his work done in the world. Now, we might argue with God that this is the most inefficient plan possible for getting his work done. And we'd have evidence to back up that argument. And just as Uncle Chuck probably did not pick the sharpest tool in the shed when he brought his little eight-year-old nephew to the work site, but clearly Uncle Chuck had additional purposes in mind. Likewise, we cannot deny the way that God, in his deeper sovereign purposes, has chosen to get his his work done in the world by granting to us the dignity of responsibility. Now, God maintains ultimate ultimate responsibility for the work the way that Uncle Chuck maintained ultimate responsibility for what took place on the work site. But nevertheless, God 
has decided to place in our hands responsible, responsibility for accomplishing the things that he is passionate about. To share the good news. To love the lonely. To raise children. To protect the vulnerable. To paint the masterpiece. To tell the truth. To plant the seed. To order the chaos. All things he could do. But instead, we get to do. And occasionally, if we look over the span of human history, you can see singular generations that seem to be given stewardship over a unique moment in history. A first century church that turned the world upside down with a gospel of love. Or a generation that made up the 16th century church of Luther and Calvin and common saints who remade the Christian world with a reformation that opened up new channels of God's grace. Or an 18th century fellowship of founding fathers in our own country who pioneered forms of democracy and rule of law that were utterly novel to the world and changed our world. Or what, of course, they've come to call the greatest generation that fought and defeated the genocidal violence of 20th century Nazis and fascists. Or what about a civil rights generation that marched out of churches with songs of hope to defeat systems of legalized racism? Or even a generation of, of generosity that confronted the scourge of HIV-AIDS and actually reversed the path of this global pandemic. What a great dignity for the people of God to be given a role to play in such epic struggles of divine consequence. But this evening, I'd like us to pause and consider the utterly unique moment in history which God seems to have placed before you and me. Whether we know it or not, Almighty God has ordained for us to be alive in a unique time in his ancient struggle against the most iconic evil in the human story. And that is the struggle against slavery. Very few people are aware of this, but there are actually more people in slavery today than in any other time in human history. There are more than 40 million people held illegally in slavery in our world today. That is four times the number of slaves that were extracted from Africa during 400 years of the transatlantic slave trade. Right now, human slavery according to the ILO, is a $150 billion business in profit every year, generating more annual profits than Coca-Cola, Disney, General Electric, Wells Fargo, and ExxonMobil combined. Slavery is not a relic of history. It's a larger reality now than ever before. So if our mental image of slavery is a black and white photo from the 19th century that we saw perhaps in the history book when we turned the page as a child, we will need to update it with color 
for the millions of 21st century slaves, for instance, laboring on agricultural facilities around the world. Or if this is the picture of slavery in our minds, it needs to be updated to reflect the millions of slaves who are trapped in violence just in brick factories in the world. The horrors and degradations of slavery that we would have learned about as children continue on an even more vast scale today. And of course, children, who in other eras found themselves born into slavery, today likewise find themselves inheriting the yoke of slavery by the millions. As the old violence and humiliation of slavery takes on 20th century, 21st century forms. Now, if these realities and pictures of modern slavery seem utterly shocking and perhaps even surreal, and maybe just unbelievable, I know exactly how you feel, because I remember the first time I met a slave. It was nearly 20 years ago now. It was a tiny little girl named Shama. She was just a few years older than my own twin daughters at the time. And when I met her, Shama was forced to sit on the floor in a rural village in India and forced to roll cigarettes, thousands of cigarettes, seven days a week, 12 to 14 hours a day. Well, the time I was conducting an undercover investigation into the the child sex trade in Southeast Asia, And I was taken into the back room of a brothel in Cambodia. And I was shown about a dozen children between the ages of five and ten years of age who were on open sale to foreign pedophiles and sex tourists. What I want to be utterly clear with you about is that I'm not talking about metaphorical slavery. I'm talking about human beings like you and me are actually owned by other human beings. And they are forced to labor by the sheer force of terror. These boys, for instance, are held as slaves on Lake Volta in West Africa in the fishing business, and they are beaten by their master if they do not comply. These two men, who are two of our clients, actually had their hands chopped off when they tried to run away from their slave master. There's a steel padlock on the cell where this young woman sleeps, where she's forced to endure the assaults of men in a brothel. And these slaves are held in a brick factory by just terror. The brutality of slavery in our world is real. And the face of those who administer the violence is also real. And I want to be honest with you tonight that in our era, slavery is taking on particularly ugly high-tech forms. I was in the Philippines not too long ago and met a young girl named Cassie. Life in her remote rural village is very tough. There's no electricity, there's no running water. She doesn't get to go to school. But everything about Cassie somehow has stayed just very gentle and sweet She's easily a favorite in the community. And when Cassie was only 12, an important family friend offered Cassie 
a dream opportunity. The chance to go to school in the capital city of Manila. It was 800 miles away to get to the capital city, but for Cassie and her family, this, this is like winning the lottery. Or so they thought, until 800 miles too late, Cassie realized that she had actually been trafficked into a cyber sex trafficking ring, where she's held inside a dingy house in Manila, and she's abused in front of a webcam, so paying customers can watch online in America or Canada or Russia or France or anywhere else around the world. This is the new threat of cyber slavery that threatens millions of the world's poorest children around the world. But here's the even more extraordinary half of the story of modern slavery. Not only is slavery more vast than ever, but it is absolutely more stoppable than ever. For the first time ever in human history, forces are aligning to make it possible for this generation, the people alive on the earth today, to see the end of slavery as a force in human affairs. Why is that? Well, for the first time in history, slavery is against the law everywhere in the world. Secondly, slavery has concentrated itself on a mass scale in just a few countries where those laws are actually not enforced. In fact, 70% of the world's slaves are in just 12 countries. In other words, while there are now laws against slavery in every country, there are a few countries where these laws are simply not enforced at all. This leads to the final reason why slavery is more stoppable than ever. For the first time in history, the world has found and tested the vaccine that stops it. And here's what we've learned. When effective law enforcement is combined with excellent services for survivors, slavery rates collapse. And at IJM, we've actually measured this impact several times over the last decade, providing utterly validated proof now of a methodology that ends slavery. Our first project was with the Gates Foundation, where the goal was to measurably, measurably reduce sex trafficking of children in a mega city in the Philippines by 20% in four short years. We built a small team of Filipino advocates to help the local authorities rescue hundreds of children from sex trafficking, and we sent about 100 sex traffickers to jail. And it turned out the plan worked beyond our wildest dreams. When the outside experts came to audit the actual impact of the project, they didn't find a 20% reduction in child sex trafficking. They found that sex trafficking of kids had collapsed by 79%. And then, well, yes, hallelujah. And then when we attacked the problem in two other of the major cities in the Philippines, sex trafficking of slavery fell by 75% and 86%. So it turns out it actually is replicable. 
Because what we found out, of course, is this, and it's quite intuitive, that slave owners are not brave people. And if they think they're going to get caught and sent to jail, they just stop doing it. And they leave little girls like Cassie alone. Ernest's Christian friends heard about this new scourge of cyber sex trafficking. And with us, they raised their voices and they raised the resources so we could actually rescue Cassie out of her nightmare. And now Cassie is, is not only free, but she's actually leading other children to freedom in her country and is one of the most powerful and passionate spokespeople fighting sex trafficking in her country. When Cassie was trapped in slavery, she, she told me she just wanted to stop breathing. But now that the people of God have rescued her and brought her real healing, she told me she wants to use every breath God gives her to sound the alarm and rally people of faith like you to the fight. Consider then what the God of history seems to have placed before you and me. The same way each of these special generations that we named over the arc of history would have had no idea and no explanation necessarily for why they should be alive at the particular unique moment in history that they were. But here we are. God has placed you and me in an utterly unique moment in history in which there are more people in slavery than ever, but also a moment when he's placed in our hands the vaccine that could end it. The problem is this. The places in the world with the most slaves don't have access to the vaccine. They don't get, law they don't get enforcement of the law and the services that actually can restore former slaves to dignity and strength. So the question is this. Will you and I perhaps be the justice generation that finally makes freedom available to everyone? Could we actually do this? Could God be giving you and me the dignity of responsibility? You know, he's done this before, very powerfully in the area of slavery. 200 years ago, one of the most extraordinary miracles of history occurred. It's something that historians have a very difficult time explaining. Because if you and I went back in time to the early 18th, we would find a world in which the largest, most powerful, and prosperous eco global economies in the world were built on slavery. That was the engine. But within a single generation, the most surprising thing happened. The most prosperous slave economies in history were forced to stop doing it for moral reasons. How did that happen? Well, a passionate generation of Christ followers were invited by God into the dignity of responsibility. And they launched the world's first mass movement of Christian abolition. A movement in which millions of everyday Christians took up the cause of ending slavery on a mass scale. There were, of course, Christian leaders that we all have heard of, like William Wilberforce in the British Empire, Harriet Beecher Stowe here in America, or Frederick Douglass 
William Lloyd Garrison and Sojourner Truth. And these were the leaders who, of course, sounded the alarm. But what did they do in sounding that alarm? What they did was wake up a sleeping giant of a church. And by the millions, that church woke up to, their, to call their authorities to account for the sin of slavery. God gave common, everyday, church-going Christians the dignity of responsibility. And by the millions, they took up this prophetic call. They rallied to the anti-slavery cry in overflow crowds in tiny church halls, but also sometimes in massive gospel revival meetings. If you think about this, in the days before Facebook and Instagram, how did concerned Christian citizens raise awareness amongst people about the true horrors of slavery? What, what image could you circulate? Well, what they did was circulate millions of hard copies of this image, of course, which many of us would have seen in the, our history books, this diagram of the, of the slave vessel, the Brooks, which showed this image of the brutal reality of a packed slave ship. And this was the image that made sure that all their neighbors saw the true horrors of slavery. These common Christians also demanded to know where the sugar in their tea and where the cotton in their dresses had come from. They addressed themselves to their elected governing authorities and they demanded an end to slavery. Christian citizens by the millions gathered up their dollars and their shillings and they made sure that the fight for freedom had a fighting chance against the massive money interests of slavery. And over a single generation, they succeeded beyond all expectation, and they outlawed slavery from the most prosperous slave empires that humankind had ever seen. Amazing. The end of slavery seemed to have come, and the church, by the millions, went back to sleep. But slavery did not, in fact, go away. As we now know, slavery evaded extinction by adaptation. It took on new forms that the old laws did not address, and it amassed in places where the laws were not enforced. And as human population exploded, as it did in the 20th century, there were so many vulnerable people living in countries and communities where the laws were not enforced that we find ourselves where we are right now with more than 40 million people in slavery, more people than in any other time in history. Why? Again, because there are places in our world where the anti-slavery vaccine is not available, countries and communities where the vaccine of basic law enforcement and survivor services do not exist. And so we might ask, in response, in the arc of history, what does God do? Well, he seems to stir the prophetic passion of his people. He gives them the dignity of responsibility. He invites them to the grown-up work of sounding the alarm. He places in their hands the practical work of raising the awareness and the resources that will actually decide whether the forces of slavery continue to prevail in the 21st century 
or whether finally slavery is swept into the dustbin of history for good. This is what seems to be at stake in the extraordinary drama that God seems to be placing before you and me in this generation. An almighty God of history, who in every era invites a people of hope to be a witness of his goodness and his saving transformation in the world. And at this moment, when there are both more slaves than ever and the first opportunity in history to end slavery for good, this little Christian ministry, which began 20 years ago, has now become the largest anti-slavery organization in the world, providing a vehicle by which every common Christian can find a place to engage that struggle, to raise the awareness, to raise the alarm, to raise the resources, to raise the voice to do that. There is inside your program an opportunity, if you want, to actually sign up and join this army. The vehicle for doing that is something we call a a freedom partner. And there are now thousands upon thousands around the world who join us in this way, and they do three things. They just simply really give what God has given them. First of all, all of us have been given a voice. If you already knew that there are 40 million slaves in the world, more than any in history, you're probably a small part of your community. And what it will take is for us to all just give our voices to raise awareness, simple awareness. Also to raise our voices to our our governing authorities, to make this a priority as America expresses its values in the world, that America would stand with those who have the weakest voices in our world. So by becoming a freedom partner with IJM, you're able to join us as we call you to very specific engagements of advocacy, but also into engagements of prayer. In fact, in just a few months, all of IJM's 1,000 staff are coming to celebrate their 20 years of work and coming to the United States for two days to just be in prayer and worship with friends who would join them. So I would invite you to join us in that. But also the Freedom Partner allows you to help pay for the rescue the poor themselves cannot afford and to make sure that we're able to always be there when the alarm is sounded and we know that there are those who need rescue. Because when I think of little Shama enslaved in a cigarette factory so many years ago, where those little girls who were being sold to pedophiles in the back room of that brothel in Southeast Asia, or those boys that I know who right now are enslaved on a lake in West Africa, it always occurs to me, how are they somehow supposed to know that there is a good God? A good God who loves them and sees them. And then I realize, oh, God has given given this to us. He's given to us the dignity of responsibility. This amazing thing that Jesus said when he said to us, you are the light of the world. Let your light so shine among men that they will see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
I do urge you that if you find any of this just tugging at your heart this evening with a special sense of joy, I do hope that you won't allow this spark of hope to end with a joyless defeat in the church parking lot, that great asphalt graveyard, (laughs) where the holy whisper of God's glorious hope is swallowed up by the drive-away noise and rush of the next busy but perhaps lesser thing. In fact, as you consider all the various invitations to serve and be a witness to God's goodness in the world and at this church and in your own community, you must receive those invitations quite regularly. But sometimes they strike strike us as maybe something we have to do or some great burden or some overwhelming favor we're going to do for God. But in those moments, I remember my Uncle Chuck and the way he invited me and my narrow little eight-year-old shoulders to work with him at the construction site. It wasn't because he was panicked about the progress of his project, I don't think. I don't think it was because he had no other options for manpower. It was all about love and joy for me, his little nephew. It was his pure delight to invite me into an adventure of discovering what I was capable of, of the grown-up and weighty work I could do at his side. Likewise, our Heavenly Father has given you and me a glimpse of his weighty work in the world. He's doing this weighty work, and it's going to prevail. And he's just asking, do you want to step out with him to the work site to taste a bit of the dust and the sweat and the struggle of where he is building his kingdom? And just as my Uncle Chuck was part of what they called the greatest generation, that survived the Great Depression, defeated global fascism, built so much of the peace and prosperity that allows us to thrive in freedom. Likewise, maybe God is inviting you and me to be part of the justice generation. Those who take responsibility for going to work with him in the world to finally end slavery. For girls like Cassie and others who still await a witness of God's hope for them. Frederick Douglass preached a, a sermon on the 4th of July, 160 years ago, and he said this, he said that let the people of God array their immense powers against slavery and slaveholding, and the whole system of crime and blood would be scattered to the winds. That day did not fully come for Frederick Douglass in his day. But by the grace of God, for the first time in history, it may come for ours. These are the words of Jesus. You are the light of the world. Let your light so shine among men that they'll see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Thank you very much.
was well deserved. Thank you, Gary. Um, you'll have a chance to be asking him some questions in this public forum in just a few minutes. Uh, there's a mic to my right and to my left, and he's going to come back and respond to those. So uh, please think of some so there's not uh, just silence after I'm done. Since this is the last uh, event of the series, I, as always, want to make a few announcements. Um, the first is just to remind you that uh, the 16th season of Faith and Life will begin again next September. Uh, the speaker and date is indicated in your program. Uh, a woman named Jo Saxton, I believe she, it's in the middle panel at the bottom, yep. Thursday, September 27th, uh, back here in the sanctuary, seven o'clock. So we hope you'll come back for that. If you would like alerts about that, as always, please sign up for our emails uh, or like us on Facebook. Um, on the form, oh, you can also return this form um, on the back of the thing. There's also an, a place for speaker suggestions. We work a long way out in this series. It will not surprise you. So next year's series is fully booked. You can wait to hear uh, who else will be getting um, when we announce it later this summer. Uh, but on the back of your program, there is a place to offer suggestions. Uh, we take those suggestions uh, seriously. And actually, one of the most frequent questions I get, uh, in the, or I've gotten in the 15 years of this se uh, series, is where do you get your ideas? And a lot of them come from you. And uh, Gary, actually, just as an example, was suggested by many people uh, over the last few years. But I want to single out, maybe unfairly, Jim Peterson. Jim, where are you? Jim is way in the back. Uh, Jim is also a lawyer, like Gary. He's known Gary for a long time. So Jim, in the last couple of years, went out of his way to say, hey, you know, someone you really should get is this guy named Gary Haugen. So Jim, thank you. And let's give Jim a word of thanks for that. Um, I do also want to say a, a word of thanks uh, to our sponsors. As I mentioned, uh, this, these, these events are not part of the church budget. Uh, they're sponsored solely through the generosity of individuals and uh, organizations who have come to believe that this is a really important and meaningful part of our culture. Um, so I want to thank, and I know there were a number of our sponsors who could not be here because of other conflicts, but Greg and Lisa Buck at Productivity, um, Jim Voss and Ruth Ann Voss and Cressa. Jim, thank you. And I know we've got some others from Cressa here tonight, so thank you all for being present. Uh, Catherine Collins of Honeybee Capital. Cool story there. Catherine actually is a former speaker here. Uh, she actually lives out east, but she was so taken by the vision and mission of this series. She actually uh, continued to support it. Um, Gary, feel free to take a cue from that if you'd like. Um, <laughs> uh, Phil and Mona Mill and Mike Sign at Rapid Packaging. Um, Brian and Danae Malley at Malley Design. I want to say a word of uh, Sparky Abrasives, Bruce Terrell. Um, Bruce is not with us tonight. Uh, Bruce is an older gentleman, but Bruce was our very first corporate sponsor. Um, and he is now long since retired, and so he's hanging it up after this year, uh, which I mentioned just because it opens up space, perhaps for one of you, uh, if you would like to take up his space. But Bruce, if you're listening through our live stream, I want to say a profound word of thanks to you for your um, support and faith. Uh, Thrivent Financial, Brent, where are you, Brent? 
Um, Brent and Jim Elbestrom and everyone at Thrivent have been wonderful supporters uh, from the beginning of the series, so again, thank you to you. Uh, Joe and Don Keller at Motive Action and Jeff and Patrice Eric Erickson at Mastercraft. That's just a small segment of the long list of supporters. Uh, many of those individuals and uh, the others who are listed here who I'm not naming are present with us. Will you please help me thank them for making these events possible? I also, uh, a couple of other words of thanks, uh, subtext bookstores, Sarah is out there selling a couple of, of uh, titles of Gary's, uh, and by the way, after the uh, Q&A, you'll have a chance to let Gary inscribe these if you'd like, but Sarah, thank you, I don't see you, where, where are you, Sarah? Oh, there's, there you are, thank you, for, as always, for your help. Um, I also want to say a word of thanks to John Good, who's an old friend, now at IJM, and was instrumental in making this all possible, and also Sarah, thank you. Or Susan, sorry, Susan, yes. Uh, sorry, I should get a, another Oli's name right. Um, anyway, both of you, and John, especially you, for all of the hard work over the last few months. I'm really grateful, and it's great to see you tonight. And then Jeff Elstead, as always, our uh, guitarist. Thank you, Jeff, for being with us from the very beginning. Will you give a hand to Jeff? And a final word, and then Gary, I'll let you come back up. Um, about this envelope, I can think of one other time in the 15 years of this series where we've had an insert mm -hmm. in our program. We work really hard, and I hope this is part of the reason uh, we've developed a trusting relationship with our uh, audiences. We work really hard not to make this a bait and switch. We don't, in, we're not trying to convince you to come to worship here at St. Philip the Deacon. We're not coming, having you come here to ask you for money. Uh, you come free. It, I have felt from the beginning um, that it's critically important that these are, events are free and open to the public for all kinds of reasons. Uh, that said, um, as we were talking about this evening's uh, presentation, and I said this to some of the other folks before the event, um, it has become the experience of Gary and the folks at IJM that after he talks particularly, people are left wondering, well, what can I do? And so he's already mentioned it, but I will mention this envelope, and I just want to say, uh, again, no expectation, but I think it's a wonderful invitation and a wonderful opportunity to be part of a movement to end slavery. So is that fair? Yes. All right, thank you. Um, I hope I said that well. All right, Gary. Back to you. So if there are questions, again, if it'd be helpful if you'd come to the mics and um, speak into them so that we can all hear your question. And as another host at another event like this uh, says, if you could please make sure your question ends with the appropriate punctuation mark, <laughs> which means don't make a speech, ask a question. <laughs> in Chicago after you'd come back from Rwanda and uh, you stirred my heart uh, momentously uh, that night and again tonight. Um, as I heard you speak and, and heard your, um, the motivation of your heart seemed to be uh, primarily coming from your Christian faith mm. and I know you've worked with a lot of other people of goodwill who don't necessarily share the Christian faith but uh, have a commitment to social justice and, and to this cause of, of human slavery. I, I'm left wondering to what degree 
would you say that your faith has made a difference in your own commitment to this struggle? Had you not um, become a Christian at some point, had you been raised as a fine um, secular humanist who cared about the oppressed and um, these, uh, these great evils in our world, uh, could you imagine having come to the same point of commitment to this cause that you have and having sustained it the way you have? Um, or is there something that, <clears throat> for you, that you think has been um, um, transformational uh, in, in terms of your own commitment uh, that, that ties back to your faith? Thank you for the question, and especially asking it uh, in that modest way of just asking me for my own reflections of my own life, because that I can speak to. It is impossible, I think, to actually speculate of um, where I would be and what I'd be doing if my core convictions about life were, were different. And as a convinced Christian, my, my core convictions about reality come from the teachings of Jesus. But I certainly have do many, many, many friends who do not share those convictions, but share the passion to address injustice in the world and to address slavery. And I think part of the early motivation in my own journey of engaging these issues of justice was seeing actually so many more people engaged in those issues who are not people of faith and a sense of um, confusion about why there were not more of the people of faith, especially as one looked in history, um, why were not people of faith and followers of Jesus engaged in these issues of justice. So I think it's easier for me to imagine myself uh, landing in the same place of conviction, but your, your second word there was to be sustained in it. And I would say that's where I find my Christian faith is most powerful for me. In fact, we do our work at IJM as a community of Christian spiritual formation. That is to say, we have this sense that without the constant return to Christ for the formation of our interior, we cannot be the kind of people who actually sustainably engage this kind of work. You, you do need five things in order to do this work for the long haul. You need moral clarity. You need sacrificial courage. You need, need extravagant compassion. You need hope in the face of defeat. And you need a refreshing joy. We find all five of those things together in our community of Christian spiritual formation. So, for instance, we begin every day doing absolutely nothing. Uh, it's called 8.30 stillness. So from 8.30 till 9 o'clock, we all spend 30 minutes in solitude and silence just spiritually preparing for the day. And then we work very vigorously for two full hours, from 9 to 11. And we stop our work and we gather again as a, a, a together to pray for a half hour. And we return to the work and then every quarter we actually stop all work and spend a whole day in prayer together. And then once a year we call our global leaders together and all of our friends who will come and pray with us uh, for two full days. And again, that's what we're planning to do in this special year with all of our staff from around the world. Um, so 
for myself and for our team, I think what it is that we've actually found most powerful about our work is actually our experience of God in it and the way he actually uses it and the weakness we discover of ourselves in it. Because that's what you will find and learn most about as you engage a struggle against injustice. You will find your own weakness. Your own weakness to oppose great powers and your own weakness to actually be a good person. And yet we find in our faith and returning to uh, the God who loves us uh, the capacity to perhaps uh, persevere in a difficult fight and to do it with the power of a God of justice. Hi, Gary. My name is Michael. Welcome back from Minneapolis. Thank you. Uh, my wife and I had the pleasure of unexpectedly hearing you back in 2002, 2003 at Park Methodist. Uh, and boy, we were hooked ever since. Thank you. It was the haircut or something. It, but, uh, you, it works it for so many. Yeah, <clears throat> and you know, we jumped in and we learned a lot. And I think the takeaway I have from IJM is, you know, it's not only the financial but there is so much can be done for the physical. Mm. It's not about just writing a check. You can do that. Uh, we attended a prayer gathering in 2008 or 9. We attended the two-day advocacy tra- uh, tr- uh, training. Right. On the third day, my wife and I are standing in front of Senator Frankens, Senator Klobuchar, and our representative, Keith Ellison, yes. by ourselves. And we're going, what are we doing here? Right. But thanks to your training, we were able to go in, and it was a yeah. great, great experience. Yeah. On the secular side, could you kind of talk about, you know, that importance of us contacting our elected officials and yes. what the impact of yes. the ratio they use? Like, if we get 10 calls, that means it's 1,000, and yes. just what we can all do to help and how important it is. For Thank sure. You. Thank you. Yeah, I do hope we do share a sense together of, the incredibly responsive democracy that we actually do live in. I've been in Washington for almost 30 years now, and it's really, really clear what our elected authorities care deeply, deeply, deeply about, and that's getting elected again. (laughs) And uh, we're the ones who get to do the electing. And uh, so many of them actually have a great passion for issues of great idealism. And they would actually love to give their effort to these kinds of fights. But their anxiety, substantially, is, but do the voting citizens back home care about these things? If I lead on this issue, uh, am I not going to be supported by the folks back home? And that's why it has been so powerful for us to begin to mobilize the voice of common voters back home to let their public uh, representatives know that 40 million people in slavery on our watch is not tolerable. And if our representatives in Washington know that that's the way that we feel, and they know that because we take just a little bit of time and effort to let them know that, my goodness, that works with extraordinary power. One of the great things that has come together now, for the, and this is one of the the game-changing events of this era, because there are a number of reasons why I don't think I'm actually exaggerating when I say it would be possible for slavery to end as a force in human affairs in this generation. 
It will always exist as some sort of exotic, weird crime that someone is doing. But an actual force in human affairs, as a significant segment of the human economy, that could end. And one of the reasons now is there is, for the first time, coming together a global fund to end modern slavery. And the U.S. government has been leading in this with the, the British government in the same way that there was U.S. leadership for establishing the Global Fund to End AIDS. Because when, you might remember, when that epidemic was just gathering almost irrepressible force in the world, we realized that there had to be a coordinated single effort and there needed to be significant commensurate funding to address the problem. And so the Global Fund to Fight HIV AIDS was established and is one of the great stories in history of, of generosity and of effectiveness. Um, that now is coming together in this era and is being substantially led by uh, uh, members of the uh, US Congress. And the critical thing for them, though, is to know that the people back home support them in doing that. So please, the, the Freedom Partner uh, uh, program is a way to get coordinated with us in that work. There's actually a local advocacy team here that will coordinate your voice with your local um, representatives. Um, but it is a great gift that we could take more time to draw this out in history. The, the reason the, the, the great breakthrough in history of the last emancipation struggle in the 1800s took place is because you had a transformation of two things. You had democracy come so that the slave economies were no longer being ruled by kings and princes. They were being ruled by parliaments and representative democracies. So that gave the average citizen an opportunity to have a say as to whether or not slavery would actually be sanctioned. And then you had these great revivals where common citizens found that they had a prophetic voice in the matters of their country and they brought that force to bear and in uh, the countries that, uh, of the UK and the US, uh, slavery was abolished. Uh, there's a similar opportunity coming now for us to be globally engaged. Yes, sir. Um, first, Gary, thanks for spending your time to be here with us tonight. We were really honored by that. Um, I think that my, my main, the question that I wanted to ask you to speak on was that we were all really, I think, extremely touched through the sharing of the case studies that you guys did in the Philippines. Mm -hmm. And I know you've come a long way as an organization in the terms of development of best practices and rolling out different initiatives globally. And I was wondering, I know there's a lot going on, so um, you know this would require another evening of a talk, but if you could speak to some of the developments and areas of operation currently that IAJM is engaged in, specifically maybe some of your favorite uh, initiatives currently and things that you're seeing as an organization that you guys have started to implement now that um, you uh, find to be um, particularly impactful. I know that a lot of the work that you guys do in the different countries is yeah. profound, but if you could just speak to some of your favorite initiatives yeah. currently. I think we'd be, Thank you. Yeah. So some amazing things immediately come to mind. Uh, one of the most hopeful examples is taking place in Cambodia. Uh, where it took longer, but over just a little more than a decade's worth of time, we were able to reduce child sex trafficking by 80%. And the way that worked was by empowering, again, local law enforcement to be effective in actually sending people to jail for this crime, because slavery is a highly discretionary economic crime. 
You do it because you can. You do it because you can make money. That's the reason you're doing it. But it means it's very elastic to risk. So as the risk of going to jail goes up, there's a certain point at which it just collapses. You make the calculation as the criminal that, well, I can't get away with this anymore. So that's what happens when you empower local law enforcement in the developing world to actually address this. And this is what we discovered. They're actually, that it is actually possible to take broken, corrupt, brutal law enforcement and have it actually work. We do that by bolting IJM onto it. And again, working through a local team of, of, of nationals. So, so these are Cambodian lawyers and investigators and social workers who bolt onto that criminal justice system, work for it, with it for a series of years, and then once it's actually functioning, unbolt IJM and see if it can operate on its own. And in Cambodia, outside auditors have actually validated that for three years now, it is doing on its own what it's supposed to do to, uh, uh, to, to enforce the law against child sex trafficking. This is a beautiful thing, that it's actually possible to get local law enforcement to work. The other thing, though, is great survivor services. For a number of reasons, this is absolutely critical, largely because law enforcement won't do its work if they don't actually think that rescuing girls or, or families from slavery is actually something that produces an outcome that changes their lives. And many times they're quite cynical about it, but once they see that it works because you've got great survivor services, that motivates law enforcement. Second biggest thing that we have seen is not only proving that you can fix a public justice system that's broken, but now we can actually measure slavery. Can you imagine how do you address a problem that you couldn't measure? With the HIV-AIDS epidemic, we had to come up with prevalence studies to figure out, well, how much HIV-AIDS is there, and is our intervention actually working? So the way, reason I'm able to give you these numbers of 80%, 75%, 86% is because now, just within the last decade, we've developed the methodologies for measuring slavery and whether or not interventions work. This is completely game-changing. There was no opportunity to actually fight slavery in a definitive way prior to this, these technologies, but now they exist. The third thing, sorry to rush through these, is now business is being engaged. The biggest corporations and brands in the world know that they f face massive reputational exposure if there is forced labor or slavery somewhere in their supply chain. So they are terribly concerned that somebody's going to find uh, slavery in the fishing industry for the fish sticks that we buy at Walmart, right? And then everybody's going to go, the fish sticks in Walmart are, are come to us from slaves. We're going to Target instead, right? And so uh, Walmart, for instance, has actually opened an office with IJM in Thailand to get slavery out of the fishing industry. They paid for measuring how much there actually is and now a benchmark against which we can do that. As wonderful as the sort of the funding of that, the more powerful thing is this. The reason there is slavery, there is slavery in the Thai fishing industry is because the Thai government is not doing what it should do to actually enforce the laws. And we've said to the corporate partners, look, you're bearing all the reputational risk of this. Why don't you exercise your influence with the government authorities because they care more about what you actually have to say than really any other voice. And you say, look, we love participating in economic development in your country, but we've got this risk that we're running that we just can't bear. If you could just do your job, that would be super helpful to us. <laughs>
And here's an organization, IJM, that can actually help you do that. This is going to unleash extraordinary um, uh, forces for good in the world. But they do that because these leaders of these corporations want to be good citizens in the world. I think there's sincerity in that. But the engine also behind it is consumer awareness. So the fact that, again, it goes down back again to the common citizen. When the common citizen asks about their fish sticks, it produces uh, powerful mechanisms in the world. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Hi. Hi. Hey, Gary. Sorry if I get emotional. Um, I don't think I'm going to get through this without crying. I went to the IGM prayer conference in D.C. in um, 2014 and 2016. And I didn't have a question. I just wanted to say thank you. Mm. Um, it's really important to go to these prayer conferences. I'm not trying to cry to elicit some kind of emotional reaction. I just, it floored me. It yeah. absolutely floored me. Yeah. How much God shows up at these conferences and how much your life has changed at these conferences. I, it changed my life to go to these conferences. So I just wanted to say thank you, and I just wanted to urge anybody that's, I'm just really going to do a PSA. <laughs> just, I just really want you to go to the prayer conference because it really is life-changing, and you spend specific time praying for things like the Philippine police to get trained, and then you see, you come back, and then you see that they were, and then you see that they're effective. And so the praying is, it's, it's intense and it's amazing, and you're with thousands of people from around the world that have given their lives to help these slaves. And can you imagine how amazing that is to be around that many people um, that love the Lord and um, are doing this work? And so I apologize again for getting emotional, but hmm. I didn't get a chance to talk to you, and I was probably too shy, and I was probably too like, I can't go talk to Gary Hogan. But I drove from East St. Paul to come thank over you. here. <laughs> To tell you thank you. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you for the PSA. Uh, <laughs> these prayer gatherings started out, the first one was, was fewer than 100 people. And uh, they're now uh, thousands come to join us for these days. And it's the hardest thing in the world to market. Uh, come to a prayer gathering. Well, either, I mean, what was the last, like, fabulous prayer gathering you went to? Like, a lot of times, like... <laughs> That's just not in my personal history, so I have no idea what you're talking about. Or the people who really deeply do experience prayer don't think you're actually going to pray. And so no one comes to your prayer gathering. Um, but they're now coming by the thousands because their friends just drag them. Uh, like our sister here who just says, I can't explain this, but please just come with me and you will so thank me that you did. And honestly, I... Uh, September 28th and 29th, 1,000 IJMers are going to be together seeing who comes to just be with them and to pray with them and to begin to uh, cast a vision of what, uh, what might be in the future. So you could miss it, but like, don't blame our sister like if you don't. Uh, yeah. Who clearly is not shy. Yeah. <laughs> Just I have a quick question for you. Yeah. Um, thank you again, too, for being here and sharing with us. Um, you had mentioned there was a transition for slavery to uh, not go away in the late 1800s, right, for it to sort of go uh, and be manifested in other ways. I'm wondering if you could speak more to the technological aspect, um, because it seems like this sort of silent funder of um, 
sex trafficking would be pornography in the pornography industry. Can you speak to, um, you know, to what extent, obviously the majority of those um, in uh, pornographic videos and such are not porn stars. Um, yeah. They're there often not voluntarily. Can you speak to maybe other statistics about that? Are there also, is there a sense in which that, that is the next sort of wave and in which um, obviously not only the funding but the actual um, yeah. persons will be sort of underground because obviously that can happen at a much smaller scale um, and at, even at a much larger scale because of that or potentially. Yeah. Um, can you just speak to you know maybe stats or sort of what, what's the outlook and is IJM, I, don't, I should maybe be familiar with this but I'm not, is, sure. is IJM involved in that process in any way? Yeah. Well again to emphasize that the very disturbing story on the horizon is, is this wonderful thing called broadband and the capacity to stream enormous amounts of video online and share it internationally. What a glorious, wonderful thing that I can FaceTime with my daughter while she's in Spain for her, you know, her semester overseas. But when that broadband capacity goes into the developing world, where there are lots of very poor communities and vulnerable children, they get dragged in front of these webcams and they get uh, abused by vicious adults uh, who will set up a wire transfer of funds uh, in order for a pedophile around the world who used to have to go travel to that country for this sick experience now directs it online um, real time and we've seen this spring up in the Philippines where we're so thankful we had built an infrastructure in law enforcement to address it uh, but it was sort of ahead of the curve there because the Philippines uh, had uh, quicker access to broadband than a lot of developing countries, but it also had lots of poor kids. And so now this is going to be a very significant frontier of difficulty. Um, uh, but there are also very, very powerful technological tools to be able to address it. Uh, and the large technological uh, players are having a very positive uh, force in, in addressing this. So what happens now is that uh, it's possible to actually have referrals of, from law enforcement of images that are being streamed that they now have algorithms of the court that, that picks up the, pick up their uh, abusive and obscene nature against children. They can then walk those law enforcement leads back to the country. So now the Philippines is receiving thousands of case referrals every month from U.S. law enforcement. Um, so this is a, a great struggle. Uh, the developing world will need great law enforcement in order to address it, and that's something we can actually um, help out with. Visit IJM's website, IJM.org, for some more information about this. Let's do uh, one more question. Yes. Maybe two more questions. <laughs> that's me. <laughs> Make it a good Gary, one. thank you yes. so much for coming. Um, I have been a part of the anti-trafficking um, network of people, and if I were to trace my roots back to basically like what called and what sent me, it would be organization. Oh, and so thank you. thank you for leading the way. Like six years, like it always comes back to IJM. So Thanks thank you. God. 
Um, so here's my question, though. Yeah. So my question is, like, what do you see is the next step for combating this issue? What do you see is next for IJM, and what do you see is next for the church to address what is going on with sex trafficking? Yeah. I think the, we're still in some early stages of awareness, right? We just need to get the word out and sound the alarm. I think we spoke of a lot of urgent, brutal, massive things tonight that just most of our neighbors would not be aware of. So it is the, the work that we all can do of building awareness. Um, the next step for IJM, in many respects, is to scale by training and empowering other organizations with this methodology. Um, some years ago, the Google Foundation came to us and said, we'd like to expand your work on addressing slavery in South Asia, um, but we want to see you expand that work by training other organizations and, and partners. We actually were a little reluctant to do that because we knew how to get the work done ourselves, but we didn't know if we'd be effective in training others because uh, you give a lot of time and money to that effort and you don't know what your outcome's going to be. Uh, but we thought we would give it a shot. And now we've developed a network of partners now over the year who rescue many, many more thousands of people from slavery than we ever do. So this little light bulb has gone off uh, in our heads where, oh, uh, the scale that's going to be required um, is going to come from training and equipping other organizations and entities that are embedded in the places in the world where there is uh, large-scale slavery with a methodology that actually ends it. And secondly, this uh, rallying the world to a global fund that will coordinate all these efforts together so you don't have a, a thousand anti-slavery organizations doing a bunch of uncoordinated things that no one knows whether any of them actually work, but actually get a coordinated fund that is, um, has the resources it needs, but also has the discipline strategy and metrics of accountability for effectiveness that will actually make the slave owners shake in their boots. Because at the moment, uh, they're not afraid of a thousand discoordinated dis 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 uh, efforts. Yeah. With that? Okay, so now I don't know how many more questions we've got. Uh, let's do... Please. Yeah, please. Hello, Gary. My name is Glenn. And my, I would, uh, my question is about the services. Could you talk more specifically about some of the services that are provided to um, keep people out of slavery yes. and from coming back in? Yes. And uh, I think specifically of rebuilding broken lives of, uh, you know, I'm sure that in many cases, the only thing that can really heal and help people is God and some of those like long work and uh, time and actually rebuilding lives. Yes. Thank you for that. This is one of the, the miracles um, that if, they, if, the, if a survivor of, of slavery does not receive excellent aftercare, the odds are overwhelming that they will be re-victimized. So you go all of this effort to get them out of that place of abuse, but the reason they were in that abuse was largely because there were vulnerabilities. And so if you just allow them to go right back to that place of vulnerability, they're going to likely be abused again. And many of them, especially in the sex trafficking area, have, have suffered such severe trauma that if that is not addressed, they're not going to be equipped to go forward. But the miracle is that we've seen is that great aftercare service actually works. Our now, uh, and wonderfully, we now have these ways to measure the effectiveness of aftercare. 
And by more than 90%, the people who participate in our programs will never return to places of, of slavery. For instance, when we rescue people out of forced labor, uh, they enter a two-year freedom school. It takes two years in our experience for them to actually recover the capacity to make decisions for themselves, to re recover the capacity to uh, make plans, to actually have dreams, to have a bank account, to know what it means to enroll in school and to follow through. Um, but we now have, by the thousands, stories of those who have gone through excellent aftercare and are leading in their own communities. So it depends upon the nature of the slavery. So for a young girl who's been for three years serially raped inside a brothel, it's going to take years of residential aftercare to be able to bring healing. And that means addressing with psychological professional care the trauma. It means uh, education. It means um, job readiness. And also, in our experience, uh, addressing the deep spiritual needs of those who are being, uh, uh, who've been victimized in these experiences. But what I can also tell you, for instance, our, one of our best lawyers in our, on our India team, who is responsible for prosecuting uh, many uh, forced labor uh, criminals, he was actually a slave in a brick factory that we rescued about 15 years ago. And that's where you see the waste of humanity that is being ground up by slavery. When you see this boy who's rescued out when he's about 15, he's brilliant. He gets himself to school. We help him to get him to law school. Uh, he actually comes uh, and works for us. We also have other social workers and staff members um, who are themselves uh, transformed and healed victims and survivors of slavery. So this is the great hope, but it requires great effort on our part. But the marvelous thing now is, again, we have some metrics by which we can actually measure the effectiveness of these efforts. Yes? One more question. One more. You know, and if, if you, you know, don't want to answer this now, that's fine as well. Um, but my question is, is that in your talk, you had referenced the time when you were in Cambodia yes. on the ground undercover. Yeah. And you're, you're a man who's been called into this fight by God. And over time, you've watched your organization change and scale. And so, by necessity, your role has drastically changed over these last 20 years. And I wanted to ask you, in that process of your role changing, um, what has been incredibly good in that you see the goodness of God and how your role is now? And what of that has been hard for you? Yeah. The goodness so overwhelms the things that have been hard. Um, I'm really thankful myself that I enjoy the evolving nature of my role. Uh, so I love doing this. Um, I, I love the opportunity to speak and represent the work and rally support for it. Um, so I'm not engaged tactically with working cases anymore, uh, which I loved also doing when I did that. But fortunately, it's... Um, uh, I'm not, it's football season. I'm not missing baseball during football season because I am, uh, I'm enjoying th this as well. So I'm really grateful to God um, for that. The hardest part of it for sure is just those experiences where you fail. 
where you don't arrive on time, where you could not fix the girl who's been forcibly infected with HIV AIDS and she passes, or the prisoner who expires in the prison, or the lives that you just, the girls that you did an undercover operation and you found them, uh, but because you could not bring rescue then, when you did come, they were gone. Uh, There are, especially in the early days of IJM, there were far more defeats than there were victories. I tell friends that in the first 10 years of IJM, our main rally cry was, well, every time we run at the problem, we learn something we didn't know. (laughs) Because we failed almost every time we ran at the problem. Um, And so that is just, there is this thing that must be given to God. And I think that is part of the spiritual formation of it as well, to realize that He is the God of justice. He bears the weight of this struggle. I am just um, a jar of clay into which he may choose to pour his treasure, but it will always be held in this very earthen vessel. And um, it is a spiritual discipline to continue to throw off the weight and have uh, the, the God of the universe carry it instead. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. You're Sorry, I'm going to let you applaud wildly in a moment. Uh, Thank you for coming out. We always give our speakers a gift. Um, Gary, what a privilege to have you with us tonight. Thank you so much for your work and for your words. So we have a a small piece of granite, which says simply with thanks to Gary Haugen for bringing faith to life. We thank you so much. Thank you, Tim. Thank you very much. Thank you all very much.